Well, congratulations on having remembered that A, it's Sunday, B, there's a service at Church Lane, C, actually how to get here, and D, that the service leaders, the musicians, the stewards, the techies, the coffee makers, I hope, the young people's teachers all remembered to come this morning. Because memory can be very unreliable, especially at this time when there's so much to remember. The victims of war, the gunpowder plot, and, of course, there's only 42 days to Christmas. But I guarantee that there is one thing that you have forgotten not did I lock the car or did I turn the gas off or on, but you will have forgotten what you dreamed about the night before last. Everybody dreams. They reckon for about 90 minutes every night. No one is quite sure why we dream. It's probably something to do with the way the brain is sorting out its trillions of connections Maybe sometimes trying to remind us about something, occasionally perhaps some kind of message from God. The Bible has got about 130 different uh, references to dreams and another 100 to, um, to visions. And uh, some of them predict the future, like the two that we've read about this morning. Others are just messages from God, like the dreams that the other Joseph in the Christmas story had, telling him both to marry Mary and also to um, uh, take the family into Egypt. The Bible recognizes that dreams are normal. It does actually at times remind us that many of them don't mean anything at all as the brain just sorts itself out. But our theme of discernment this morning arises from those dreams of Joseph. Uh, sorry, not the dreams of Joseph, the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer. And in the next chapter, 41, the dreams of Pharaoh, which Joseph interpreted. Discernment is something that we all need. Collins Dictionaries declared the word for the year 2017 to be fake news. Last year, 2016, Oxford Dictionaries said their word for the year was post-truth. The default position for so many of us is that what I think or what I have heard or what I say is true and everything else is at best alternative fact we play down other information as irrelevant we ridicule it as bias or flatly deny it well, it's nothing new remember Jesus rebuked his opponents who knew how to discern the weather from the sky and the clouds but they couldn't discern the truth about his mission and his message Paul tells us that Discernment 
comes from thinking honestly. In Romans, he tells us not to let the world around us squeeze us into its own mould, but to let God remould our minds from within, so that we may prove or discern in practice that the plan of God for us is good, meets all his demands, and moves towards the goal of true maturity. I looked a little bit at this issue last year in the Judas Trap, which is still available. I've even brought copies with me if you want one. Discernment is one of the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12. And there in 1 Corinthians it implies that it's not restricted or confined to one or two people who act as our oracles or advisors to the church, but different people have it at different times. We all need discernment in our personal life to distinguish, for example, between our wants and our needs. The psychologist Oliver James tells of a British woman married to a super-rich property developer. One day she went into a Porsche dealer and bought a car on the spot, even though she couldn't drive. And her personal assistant asked why she'd done it, and she said, because I can. I hate my husband, I'm unhappy, and I've got the money. Extreme retail therapy. But the failure to distinguish between wants and needs is a temptation that all of us face from time to time. We forget Paul's words. If we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Otherwise, our focus turns in on ourselves or on things rather than to discerning God's purposes. Similarly, we need discernment between what we could do and what we should do. And it's not easy. C.H. Spurgeon, famous Baptist preacher at the end of the 19th century, once said, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. And a major need today for many people is discerning our identity. Who am I? Why am I here? What do people think of me? What do I look like? And the failure to find satisfying answers to questions like that lies behind a lot of the mental dis-ease and damaging or inappropriate behaviour that we discover today. It's not just restricted to younger people. I've just read um, a story uh, by leading science fiction writer Stephen Baxter who tells one of his stories of a man who spends his whole life looking for answers to the questions why is there something rather than nothing? Who are you? Why is this world, this solar system, maybe this universe, dying? Why is there a you as opposed to the non-you all around? Discernment of our identity 
is actually a very important thing for our spiritual, emotional health and growth. The Christian, of course, has an answer, although it's important that we're not glib about it. I'm a child of God. God loves me for who I am, not for what I do, not for what I wear. God gives me purpose, and his ways are not the same as the ways of the world around us. But even Christians find that hard to take on board. We get caught up, particularly in the striving for status, for recognition in our work and in our community, maybe sometimes even within our church. An important aspect of discernment in the New Testament is called distinguishing between spirits in 1 John 4. It's mostly about clarifying whether someone is telling the truth or not. So, for example, you've got St. Paul who discerns that Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 have been lying about their contribution to the church. A bit later on, he uses that gift to deal with the fortune teller who was telling the truth, but for the wrong motives and the wrong reasons. Rather reminiscent of T.S. Eliot's famous line in Murder in the Cathedral, that the last temptation is the greatest treason to do the right thing for the wrong reason. We can be gullible. We like to believe the best. We like to take people at face value. And we certainly should be welcoming and considerate. But we shouldn't allow ourselves to be conned. That is how nice people in churches, community groups, politics have turned out to be fraudsters or abusers because discernment has been lacking. So how do we develop and use this gift of discernment. Let's just look at how Joseph was able to discern the meanings of those dreams of the baker, the cupbearer, and later the king. Genesis tells us in the passage that we just read twice that the Lord was with him. That doesn't mean that he was just a lucky boy. Terms like that are only applied in Scripture to people who are themselves seeking to be faithful to God. Joseph has kept the faith despite all the odds. Remember the backstory. He was bullied by his brothers, a common cause of resentment against God and against people. He was sold into slavery, clapped in irons, treated like an animal, kept in appalling conditions, and then shipped to a foreign country. His Israelite contemporaries would have concluded that God had cursed him, abandoned him, rejected him. But he kept the faith and became a trusted steward in a nobleman's house. Presumably he worked hard, presumably he learned the language and the customs, and he assumed that God had not abandoned him, but that God had put him in an unlikely place for some purpose as yet unknown. And then the nobleman's bored trophy wife, the sort who buys a Porsche because she can, tried to seduce him, and he refused. 
keeping the faith. And she got so mad at him that she falsely accused him of rape and he was clapped again in prison. He had no hope of a fair trial and that was where we met him in the readings. Conditions would have been squalid. No sanitation, minimal food, a recipe for despair when many would have given up. His was a life sentence. It was unfair, it was unjust, it was utterly wrong. He had every right to feel bitter, but he kept the faith. He knew what the psalmist later declared, that all the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful for those who keep the commandments of his covenant. And so Joseph once again became a model prisoner. And eventually, when he interpreted the other men's dreams, there was a glimmer of hope for release, which was dashed. The cupbearer forgot him. Just imagine how that must have felt after all that he'd suffered, yet another blow. But still, he kept the faith. Later, he got the break, which enabled him then to become prime minister, which you'll be thinking about next week. Joseph's faithfulness to God nurtured his ability to discern what God was saying to the two prisoners and to the king. And it was all the more remarkable because he didn't have the benefit later generations had, and we have, of being able to check what God wants or is saying or is doing in a particular situation. We've got two standards. One is scripture. Deuteronomy 13 reminds us that uh, people who interpret dreams which come true, which seemingly authenticate their gift, but which then uh, can actually lead people away from God if they advocate actions which are contrary to what he has already revealed. And so Jeremiah later on writes, let the prophet who has a dream tell his dream, but let the one who has my word speak it dutifully. Not every dream is a word from God. The second standard is Paul's instruction that when a prophet speaks, the rest should weigh carefully what is said. That is, consider if this is or is not a genuine word from God. Discernment then becomes a corporate gift, not just a personal one. And so we need to consult each other about major decisions before we take actions, before we make our minds up. Ignatius Loyola, the founder of various Ignatian forms of spirituality, once faced a difficult decision with friends. So they each shared, in turn, reasons why they should not take a particular action. No discussion, and then they went away to pray. And then they came back together, and once more, in turn, shared reasons why they should take that particular action. Again, with no discussion. And they went away to pray. The next time they met, they were in full agreement as to what should be done. They had weighed it up 
discerned what God wanted together. And Joseph's faithfulness was also accompanied by patience. The time scale here, remember, is one of years, not weeks, not months. We can't expect to be discerning people if we're always in a rush. And that is hugely challenging in a fast-paced society. Discernment often requires that we don't make rapid decisions, that we don't jump to conclusions, that we don't form quick opinions that don't do justice to the broader context. If God is faithful, his purposes won't be held up or thwarted because we took time to listen carefully and get our actions and our views in tune with his. Patience, remember, is a fruit of the Spirit in the New Testament. Proverbs says that whoever is patient has great discernment, but one who is quick-tempered displays folly. John, in the book of Revelation, describing all the cycles of turmoil that characterize human history, says this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. But there's another side to this. Patience and faithfulness doesn't mean inaction. Discernment means being able to recognize when unexpected opportunities present themselves, as Joseph did. So when he took the bread and water into the cup, baker, the cup bearer and the baker on that fateful morning, they didn't tell him they'd had dreams. It says they looked dejected. And he discerned that and asked them why. He discerned there was a problem. And then they talked, seeing him perhaps as someone they could confide in. He'd been already a patient and faithful person who these two men could trust. And so they told him. And instead of him rushing off to his next duty, he sat and listened. That is discernment. But there's another factor contributing to Joseph's gift, and that's realism. The cliche would be humility. But true humility is nothing other than realism. Long gone is that brash teenage Joseph who boasted to his brothers about dreams that indicated an unconscious rule, desire to rule over them which became prophetic, but to great, his great cost. And they seemed to have resented him for that. And Joseph didn't present himself either to the Egyptian court when he arrived there as a fortune teller. He didn't put up a sign even in the prison saying, dreams interpreted if you share your rations with me. He kept his gift quiet He'd taken a lot of knocks, but he's remained faithful. He's learned patience. He knows that God is in charge. So when the prisoners, prisoners complain that there is no one to interpret their dreams, Joseph doesn't say, I'll do it. He says interpretations belong to God. 
tell me what you dreamt. And later, when he gets the chance to interpret the king's dreams, he's even more circumspect. He says, I can't do it. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he, God, desires. Call it humility if you want, but realism is nearer the mark. Because this isn't the sort of faux humility that Christians sometimes use as a mantra or as a cliche to preface every action or conversation. And so often that can be a thinly disguised delight in what we are doing. This is real. Joseph knows, he feels deep inside the real presence and the power of the living God. He knows in John Newton's classic words that through many a danger, toils and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. Joseph is gripped by this truth. He's thrown off every shred of human pride. I can't do it. But God can. After all these years, Joseph has now become the sort of person who God can trust to exercise the spiritual gift of discernment. And of all of God's gifts... Perhaps this is the second most important one for all of us to seek and to prepare for by faithfulness, patience and realism or humility and to exercise it in what is a torn and conflicted society. And I was thinking during that silence, we keep praying for peace and yet I wonder how much we are peacemakers in our daily lives and expecting others to make the peace for us. But the most important gift, of course, has never changed. Over all these virtues, says Paul, put on love which binds them together in perfect unity. Let's just bow our heads to pray. Father, we're in a hurry. Slow us down. Help us to listen. Grant us the courage to be truly faithful in all circumstances, to be patient, to be realistic. And then to be discerning in a world that's lost its way. For Jesus' sake. Amen.